Shalom, and thank you for listening to Progressively Jewish, the podcast where you can explore and connect to Judaism through a progressive Jewish lens. I'm Rabbi Richard Jacobi, and it's my pleasure to be hosting this week's episode for the weekly portion of Mishpatim, Exodus chapters 21 to 24. Our episode explores the theme of individuality, taking its lead from a verse in chapter 23, Lo tihyeh aharei rabim l'ra'ot, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. To explore this topic with me are two of my rabbinic colleagues and friends, Pete Tobias and Tanya Saknovich. And so let me turn to you straight away and ask Tanya first, then Pete, for your thoughts on our core verse, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. Tanya, welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I absolutely agree with the verse. And I generally think that following evil is a bad habit in one's life. And as soon as people will deviate from that evil way and turn on the other, that will definitely save their life. However, in the modern world, I think evil has got a lot of shades and it's a question of how do we define evil as well. And uh, evil today can be presented in many other shapes and forms, like for example, fake news or different groups on the internet, which either um, brainwash you or try to convince you in different things which don't exist or only exist in, in their heads. What do you do with those groups? Do you call them evil? And do you call the people who follow them being on their way to the evil? We might. So I would say that it's these days, it's not just not following evil, but also making an informed choices and making sure that in the modern world, you expose yourself to as much information as available or as little and making sure that you also follow the sources which one can trust. Thanks, Tanya. That's a good start with a number of leads that I'm sure we'll come back to later in this discussion. Pete. Well, I think picking up on what Tanya just said, I mean, as, as you say, evil is, I suppose, very much in the eye of the beholder and its shades are many, as you said. And one of the things that has come up very recently, I mean, the first thing that occurred to me uh, when seeing that particular phrase uh, was the, the uh, storming of the Capitol in Washington just uh, a month or so ago, where externally, uh, to those of us certainly in this country, and I think to many all over the world, that was an evil act. And yet, it seemed that there were those interpreters of it who saw it as being something positive and to encourage and to approve of. And the question comes, what was the thinking of the people who simply followed on? I don't know if you saw there was a, an item actually on, on the news just earlier this week of looking back at it, uh, saying that although there were a number of ringleaders who were involved in that uh, particular action and to an extent they could be described as conspirators uh there were some who were just kind of there for the ride it seemed like it was going to be a fun day out 
and then suddenly they found themselves engaging in the most heinous political act, if you like, almost in the whole of American history, but certainly for the last few decades. So they would, I think, fall into that category of people who simply followed a multitude, or at least in a significant number of people, to do something that was, I think, that was evil. It, it, it doesn't, there, although there are those who still don't see it as that, I think the vast majority of both Americans and indeed uh, people the world over do regard that as having been an, an evil act. So I think the important thing is to accept what the verses say. There must have been so many situations like that in, in ancient times, in biblical times, all the way through, through uh, human history where a multitude has um, behaved in a particular way and it's easy just to go with the flow without actually thinking for yourself and judging for yourself whether it's an appropriate thing to do. Thanks, Peter. And I think this question in many ways goes to the heart of this, this discussion, which is how we are as individuals is one thing, but also how we are when we are caught up in a group where that group develops its own momentum and can we have the strength and courage to uh, go against that tidal flow which is very much my um, recollection of what I saw on the 6th of, Jan um, 6th of January it was wasn't it when when that um, insurrection if you like happened and it reminded me also of how judgmental I've heard some people being about people who were in totalitarian regimes and why didn't they do more to oppose it, whether that was Nazi Germany or in the Soviet Union or elsewhere. And what does it take for an individual to stand up against the prevailing tide of opinion and the majority when they're doing something? And it is so tempting to feel that we would all be heroes, that we would all have enough um, courage and, and conviction to be able to stand up against the sort of people who are determined to do evil. And so for me, there's something in this phrase about standing up against the multitude or the majority and then also there's this question of how can you be sure when they're doing, when what they are doing is actually evil, not good. Tanya, you wanted to come back. Yeah, I absolutely agree with both of you, which, which obviously is a bit sad for our listeners because it's much better when we disagree with each other. But I just want to say it's always a question of interpretation. That's, that's the first point. Because, for example, in one of my most favorite uh, Babylonian Talmud Sugiot, I think it's Baba Mitzia, uh, 59a to 59b, uh, Rabbi Jeremiah misinterprets the same verses which we are talking now about from the book of Exodus chapter 23 of saying that what it says actually is incline after the majority. So it is a question of interpretation and often people are led by some other people's interpretation without actually making their own judgment of what is good and what is evil. And I think it's a bigger, also opens a bigger conversation, which we don't have time to have now, but for example, Holocaust. How does it happen that wonderful, ordinary people living their lives and minding their own business becomes murderers? 
and being obviously the third generation of, uh, of my family who died and suffered in the Holocaust, I'm always asking myself that question. Being a person who was born and raised in Belarus, I'm always asking that question, how does it come that a person comes into power and being democratically elected and then stays in the power for the next 26 years? Could I have done something different to prevent that happening? Can I do something different to prevent that happening? And that theme of a you know, small individual going against the machine, the government, the state, it's a big, big really question. How did it happen that the whole generation of Germans became Nazis and felt that it was okay to murder other people? How, so in, in my opinion, it came through the generation of brainwashing and ideological teaching starting from school. So evil acts, they are built up. They don't happen in one day. It takes time for that to happen. Pete, do you want to? Well, I was just thinking, I was listening to what you were saying and, and it, it occurred to me I mean, literally just a couple of days ago, looking at what's happening in, in Myanmar, that there are, there's a military uh, coup. There's obviously clear repression and a challenge to the democratic norms, or well, not, not really norms in, in Myanmar, but possibilities and hopes anyway. And I suddenly thought, well, wait a minute, a few months back, we were seeing all these demonstrations in, in Belarus against um, the dictator there who has, and, and that, I mean, there would be those who would look at that, those demonstrations um, and say, well, there's the people just following a multitude. Uh, I mean, obviously there's safety in numbers, but those who happen to think that uh, it's Lukashenko, isn't it, is, is, is the man who is doing the best he possibly can for Belarus, and certainly all of his, uh, his military and his police think that, maybe they're paid to think that, that's why they have to. But the fact is that although to those of us looking on from the outside, just as we saw the, the multitude to do evil being followed um, on the 6th of January in Washington, D.C., when we look at the the street demonstrations uh, in in Belarus, we think, well, you guys are doing the right thing. This is absolutely a good thing to be doing. And yet, it's a question of of perspective. Which side of the fence do you sit on as to whether you see that as being a positive, or just following a multitude to do what is actually evil in the eyes of someone else? It's all subjective, and. These are crowds, these are multitudes. I don't know if that was what the biblical writers had in mind. I suspect not. I don't think they were, were around when there were massive uh, political demonstrations in favour of or against democracy. Uh, but that's really, if you like, a modern day example of, of multitudes being followed and begs the question of whether every single participant in those demonstrations actually buys into whatever it is that they're ostensibly marching against or whether they're simply following because it seems like a good thing to do. Um, and that becomes part of that same question that you've raised, that it's all, it's all subjective. And what is a genuine cause, uh, with, with which, which is really valuable to one set of people or one individual, is completely anathema to another. And there are no, there don't seem to be, at least not in this context, any ultimate standards to which people can be held. And that could equally be true in the eyes of the, the biblical writers, maybe. I don't know, again, it's hard to know what the evil is that they're talking about. 
let's posit a biblical example, if I may, that perhaps there was a group of people in a in a Israelite village or encampment who decided that they'd like the sound of this new uh, Babylonian god who had appeared on the horizon, and, and this god seemed to be able to answer all their questions. So let's all go worship this god. Now, I think in the eyes of the biblical authors, that's quite clearly a form of evil. And I think from our perspective, we would say the same thing. But I don't think it's as clear cut in our day and age, simply because we are, we live in an age of information overload. And we are our world is filled with so many choices, so many options, it's often hard to actually work out what's what is truth, what's true and what isn't. I'll stop now. That's such a good point, Peter. I completely agree with you. It's, it's very individualistic, our, our judgments and our opinions about life. And, and also, it's, I have to say to you that lots of people in Belarus, they think that uh, President Lukashenko has done a lot of good for the country. And they think there is no other option. Uh, if, if he goes, there is no one else who can replace him. Lots of people think so, but also, Lots of people end up at certain points in their lives or in you know, demonstrations for all sorts of reasons. And as the, the saying goes, I think one's nation's uh, terrorist, another nation's hero. And I think that was quoted in one of my favorite films of um, Shin Bet's uh, directors when they were interviewed, uh, Gatekeepers. Uh, it was about Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And I think it's very profound our own perspective and own judgment of situations and seeing situation from an individual perspective is often not the same as we would be able to see it if we just step back and see it from you know from a bit far away and that's the example which you gave about the 6th of january events in america so thank you both ever so much for for this because we're getting into what is a very complex area nowadays as, as you've touched on because of the media and the information overload that we have. But part of this is about, is there such a thing as truth? Um, and, or is everything relatively truthful? And, and so we come back to a situation which I want to return to in a couple of minutes um, to do with when should we be standing up against something that we are convinced is wrong or in the language of this phrase from the book of Exodus, evil? And, and I guess the first thing is to explore this question, which is touched on in the concept of individuality, which goes back to a Mishnaic quote where the Mishnah cites the idea that we stamp many coins and they are all alike, but God has stamped all human beings with the seal of Adam, yet none is the same as any other. And of course, the continuation of that is the idea in um, Sanhedrin 4.5, therefore everyone must say the world was created for my sake. So we are in that sense all individual. And I just wonder, before we go into the complexities of how we assert or decide on that individuality, what have you learned from your lives so far, from your rabbinates so far, and perhaps Pete, I'll begin with you here, about being your own self? Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, no, sorry, that's not true. I thought I ought to be a bit more, a bit more 
<laughs> definitive that. No, I mean, I suppose for a very personal example, and uh, I, it's a bit, bit psycho babbly, but I, I think there is there's truth in it. I think it's actually quite an important uh, example. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite happy to give that away here in this public environment. That when I first became a rabbi, it was quite clear to me, and indeed, I subsequently discovered to most people who knew me, that I was actually very busy uh, in my first few years as a rabbi, trying to be a kind of a carbon copy of the rabbi who had inspired me uh, to come into the rabbinate. Um, I'm not going to give names or details, because you can all work it out, I suppose. But the fact is that it was quite clear that I was simply trying to follow in the footsteps, but literally, of um, the, the rabbi who was my mentor. And it was bound to come unstuck, and it absolutely did. It, it was a clear uh, mistake, and I kind of lost my own identity in the, in the, in the process. And in the end, gave up that particular my first rabbinic post and went back into teaching simply to try and get my my brain back and my sense of identity back and who I was and what I wanted to be. And I then went to my second congregation. Um, again, if you want to do the research, you can find out where it was. But this was a congregation that was a a much more a very traditional congregation in the, in the sense that although it was a reform congregation, it had a lot of very uh, United Synagogue orthodoxies as part of its practice and certainly as part of the belief systems of the individuals. Uh, and I found myself in a situation where I had to stand my ground on a whole variety of issues that was were then able to help me define who I was and what my rabbinate was going to be. And I realized that I was going to be having lots of, I mean, battles is too strong a word. It wasn't that wasn't violent, but there were clearly a lot of strong opinions that I had to deal with. And I needed to decide, okay, which are the battles that I'm going to fight? Where am I going to draw the line and say, no, okay, this is this offends me as an individual, as a as a, a rabbi whose opinions are still in the process of, of forming. And this is where I, I draw draw a line in the sand and say, okay, no, I don't agree with that one. And I'm going to, I'm going to fight you on it. If you think, if, if you want, and, and it worked, it enabled, when I went to that, when I came back from, from north of the border, there's a clue. Um, I realized that I was a completely different rabbi to the one that I'd been when I crossed over in the first place, it, it allowed me to become the rabbi that I wanted to be and be myself. Whereas my first outing into the rabbinate was very much, as I said, trying to be someone else. Thanks for that example, Pete. And given that Jewishly speaking, very often north of the border is just above the M25, you've got a lot <laughs> of country left there. Tanya, what about your own thought? Yeah, I can relate to what uh, Pete's saying about- Well, of course you can. You're a long way north of the border. <laughs> Partly because of that, but partly because I have a lot of respect for you and I think that you often speak sense, luckily, Occasionally. for me. <laughs> and in this particular instance, I definitely agree with you about, um, I think, rabbis, rabbis are under a lot of pressure and rabbis under a lot of pressure to encompass so many roles within the opposition. And particularly as young rabbis, <clears throat> one wants to be everything to everyone 
shortly and quickly realizing that it's almost impossible. And how do you meet people's expectations, but also how can you be true to yourself and what it is being true to yourself? And my personal story is a little bit different to Pete's, and that why it was really interesting for me to listen to what he's got to say, because um, I grew up in the country where there was quite strong anti-Semitism and uh, being a Jewish girl in school where there were other Jewish kids as well and being bullied by other girls, that's kind of put me in, a little bit in the corner as well, straight away. And then becoming a single parent after divorce and then moving countries and becoming an immigrant and then finally becoming a female rabbi, which is not such a big deal these days, but I think up north is still bigger then maybe a bit down south, though I'm not sure anymore. After the recent Zoom event, where I had interesting encounters with some more Orthodox members of, um, of our community in, in this country, it's, it kind of put me in a position of uh, being challenged myself and being finding myself in, in those roles which I didn't expect to find myself in. I didn't expect to get divorced, I didn't expect to become a single parent, I didn't expect to be a female rabbi, when I started my journey. And then within all those roles, finding my own place and being true to myself, but also to being the best rabbi I can be, it wasn't always easy because I wanted to fit in and I wanted you know, to be to kind of to blend in and to be the best rabbi I can, but it's almost impossible. So I think, I think it's a combination and also life experience of realizing that it's important to be true to yourself and to also to, you know, to kind of to shine through that um, integrity, to that integrity, first to yourself, but also to the principles of liberal Judaism, which I follow, and to the ethical and moral principles, which, uh, you know, which we live by. Thanks, Tanya. And thank you both for uh, talking uh, in, in quite an open way about aspects of your, your life experience and how it's shaped you to be more uniquely you in as you've been developing and you just used the word that i wanted to pick out from both your stories of of integrity and i guess that is a trait where a lot of people would would like to feel that when their life story is completed that people would say of them this was a person with integrity and Another teaching from the Mishnah about this theme talks about Akavia ben Mahalalel, who had four particular opinions where he differed from the majority. And his colleague said to him, Akavia, retract these four opinions and we want you to be the head of the court in Israel. And Akavia replied, it is better that people should call me a fool all my life than I should be guilty before God for a single hour. Let no one be able to say that I changed my views to gain office. Now, there is an almost irresistible temptation, I think, for us to take some pot shots at politicians who we could maybe charge with having changed their opinions to gain office. But I think I'd rather we don't go there because I'd, I'd prefer us to stay on the sort of difficult territory that you were exploring a few minutes ago of how do we maintain our and develop our own integrity so that ultimately we could know when 
and in what circumstances we might want to do what Rosa Parks did, for example, and even break the law of the land in order to stand for a higher value. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about um, what might help you to know if that moment arose. Who'd like to come first on that one? Go on, Pete. I can see. I can see you want to speak. I can see. I you can see. I want you to speak. But okay, let's. <laughs> no. Well, okay. I mean, just I'm not so much about going against the law of the land. I think that may come out uh, in something that maybe Tanya says. I mean, for example, if to put it as a question for you to answer in a moment, uh, if you were in Belarus right now. I get the impression, I don't have much doubt, that you'd be part of those, or would have been part of those marches, which were against the law of the land, but clearly showed some kind of integrity. And that kind of, but you're following a multitude to do something positive, it could be argued. But I'd like to take actually thinking about um, Akavia Ben Mahalalel, what a name, Mahalalel, what a surname. Um, because when I when I went to, to that job, staying within the, the, the context of what I was talking about earlier at a personal level, when I uh, was interviewing for that job in this northern congregation in a foreign land, um, the more the longer the, the, the weekend of being of my trial weekend went on, the more clear it became to me that this was going to be a, a tough one. And, and I probably wouldn't be comfortable there and they wouldn't want me anyway. And so I'd like to just, just quote one of my favourite moments from the interview process, where at the very end of the weekend on the Sunday lunchtime, I was sitting around a large table with various members of the congregation asking a variety of questions, which I answered as you would answer. They weren't exactly challenging. What would you do in this situation? What is your thoughts about that? And then they said, OK, well, is there anything that you'd like to say to us? And so against my better judgment, I actually said, and these are the words, I mean, we both know our respective reputations. You as a very uh, traditional, almost right-wing reformed congregation, and me as a very maverick, left-wing liberal rabbi. I said, so I was say, if you employ me, then maybe we can uh, meet in the middle somewhere and both grow up a bit. And as these words left my mouth, I thought, I really don't want this job, do I? And 48 hours later, they gave it to me. But the point is that I knew on the basis of that, that they knew what they were getting and I could go in and be true to myself and challenge them. Whereas if I just said, no, I've got nothing else to add. And I'll, I, I would have come out of that interview knowing that I just said all the right things that I should say, ticked all the boxes that I wanted to tick. So I may have been offered the job, but I wouldn't have given myself that opportunity to maintain that level of integrity that I suddenly found in that quite provocative statement, uh, which they either chose to ignore or embrace. But either way, that's the, that's the ticket with which I went into that job. And I was there for eight years. So I obviously did something right. That's really interesting what you've got to say, Pete, because I've also been in a situation when integrity and being honest didn't pay as well. So I think it depends on the circumstances. And I think this, this particular conversation 
is, is much more difficult than it looks at first. I'm not sure about Akavia Ben Mahalalel, what's a name, it indeed, but I certainly know that uh, my mother used to say to me that whatever you think now will be different in 10 years. And whatever I thought when I was 40, and then when I was 15, and when I'm now 60 at the time, I then knew that when I'm 10 years older, my opinions might change. And it's just so profound to me now, being older and remembering those conversations at the time, which it was very dismissive of. And we might change our opinion and we might change what we think about things here and there. But I think what is crucial is that sense of honesty, integrity, first of all, with ourselves to admit that. I met lots of people in my life who, who, whose views, never mind they change to gain office, but whose views were wrong or mistaken and proved so, and they would never admit that. And I think that's, that's ability to admit one's mistake or uh, humility to you know to admit that once changed their views which is absolutely fine to do i think it's you know it requires much more courage than stand by your views and uh, and not change them which obviously I, I would agree completely that's completely wrong to gain one's views to uh, sorry to change one's views to gain to gain office exactly what pete was talking about but it's it's, I think it's much deeper and more complicated than it looks uh, from the, you know, from the first, from the first view, in my opinion. I think there's, there's something enormously important there about what, what is it you allow to change your opinion? And the Akavia statement is very much about the carrot of office and power. If you change your opinion to gain power, then you're compromising yourself seriously, aren't you? I agree with you, but then, yes, sorry to come in because I'm actually quite passionate about it. I know that we've got limited time, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story, which I was going to say, and then I changed my mind. But it's, it's not just about, it's not about, you know, saying something which people expect you to do, but often that pays off. And that's why where we are with the politicians today. Very few people can take honesty or honest opinion about situation in the world. And that politicians are now trained to say the things which, as, as you know, as they know people want them to, to hear th those things. I'll give you a life example, real life example. I had a wonderful person coming to see me and he wanted to convert. He wanted to become a liberal Jew. After an hour conversation, I realized that the only reason he wants to become a liberal Jew is because he's been trying to become an Orthodox and didn't succeed. And the question for me was, now that I know honestly that the person doesn't really want to be liberal Jew, but he came to me because he thought that it was an easier and possible way for him to convert, do I then allow him to come on the conversion course or not? It was entirely my decision. So what did I do? I went to see my colleagues. I spoke to my colleagues and sought the advice. And majority of my colleagues said, well, of course, no, no. Because he clearly doesn't want to be a liberal Jew and we feel really sorry for him, but that's not the right way for him. He needs to really persevere and, and, and you know, try and convert through orthodoxy. Then I got back 
to that lovely person. And what do you think I said to him? I you said, told yes. him to join the class. Yeah. Yes. But I, I told him to join the class on one condition. I said, look, we'll make a deal for a year and a half, because that was, you know, with the services and everything, plus a year of course, you're going to become a liberal Jew. You're going to dress as a liberal Jew, you're going to come to services, and you know, we'll have regular meetings. And that's what we did. And the result was fascinating because he came to me looking very smart rather than dressing like an Orthodox Jew and having tzitzit, etc. with a very nice smart suit. He came to me at the end of the course and he said, thank you so, so much. And you know, he's still a member of our congregation, but he, he said to me, thank you, I need to talk to you. I said, well, of course, you know, I've got some really important conversation to have. I said, yes, absolutely. Well, you've got, you've been on the course, it's almost the end. Can you just tell me one thing? Do you feel that you want to go back and, you know, to, to try an Orthodox conversion? He said, no, but I have to tell you that being a liberal Jew, is much harder than being an Orthodox Jew because you have to make all those choices yourself. Sorry, I'm applauding there silently, but I think that's that's a yeah. great story and a, and, a, and a great conclusion to reach. And I, mean, I suppose the thing that disappoints me the most is the fact that so many of your colleagues simply rejected this guy without even giving him the opportunity that you gave him. And I think, Kolakavod uh, to you, that was a fantastic piece of of rabbinic work to engage this individual in that way and uh yeah i'm 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 in awe of that decision and that story so thank you for sharing it and and i i would share pete's concern uh, in some way about the advice received because i i strikes me that you've got shammai and hillel and you know hillel says you know a, a one-line response you know, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow, and the rest is commentary, now go and learn it. And it's the invitation to come and learn that you gave that allows someone to develop their own thinking. And that goes right back to the first answer you gave us, Tanya, where you talked about informed choices and trying mm -hmm. to make informed choices, which is very much part of this. Absolutely, Richard, but the conversation is about integrity and honesty. And that's what I've said. The, the reason I brought up this story, because again, I, I think my colleagues meant it really well. But in their opinion was, you know, they just think a little bit differently from me. And I'm sure they meant it really well as well. So it often happens in life that integrity and honesty doesn't always pay off as, as well as it can be, depending on the individual and their take. So the issue is much more complex than sometimes it, it you know, might be presented or seemed to us. And, and those are some of the thoughts I think we have to leave open for the listeners to this, to develop their thinking. And one of my favorite quotations um, comes from um, the, the preface to a book on, on learning. And it, the quote is, a conclusion is the place where I stop thinking. And so in that sense, we're not looking for our listeners to ever reach a conclusion because we don't want them to stop thinking. Now, you can't think about everything all the time, but we equally want people to be open to change. And I think that's part of what you talked about in, in some of your inputs, Tanya. So thank you for that. 
Absolutely, but also to be open-minded, which is so it's entrapped you. And uh, as to say that I, I really love all my friends from Orthodox Judaism. I, I, I'm not against it at all. It is everyone finds what is best for them. But what we want our listeners to do is to express their opinions on our Facebook page, if they would like to, or to write to us on progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, indeed. And I guess this sense of individuality is that we would like people to um, be able to head towards their um, them being themselves, them having integrity, and their name being one that other people look at and respect. And this sense of name is picked out by a beautiful poem of Zelda Mishkovsky's, known as Zelda. She started life in Russia. She ended her life moving to Palestine, which then became Israel, until she died in the uh, 1980s. Um, and it's, I think it's Springboard, is a, is a quote in the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, Tov Shem Mishemen Tov, a good name is more valuable, is better than the most precious of oils and other precious items that we might have. And what Zelda said, um, well, let's let's just read it and we'll take a verse each in turn, perhaps, to just read through it as a conclusion to our discussion. Each of us has a name given us by God and by our mother and father. Each of us has a name given us by our statue and smile and the clothes we wear. Each of us has a name given us by the mountains and walls within which we live. Each of us has a name given us by the planets and by our neighbours. Each of us has a name given us by our sins and by our aspirations. Each of us has a name given us by our enemies and by those we love. Each of us has a name given us by our leisure time and by our work. Each of us has a name given us by the seasons and by our blindness. Each of us has a name given us by the sea and by the way we die. And we hope that this episode has given people a chance to think about these questions of what it takes to be the individual they are born to be, what it takes for them to be the person that they have the potential to be. I want to thank on everyone's behalf, uh, my guests, our guests this week, Rabbis Pete Tobias, who is shortly to leave his post at the Liberal Synagogue Elstree and move to California and our loss is the USA's gain, and Rabbi Tanya Saknovich shortly moving to succeed Pete at Elstree after 12 very successful years at the Nottingham Liberal, Syn Liberal Synagogue. We wish them both well in these new adventures. Our thanks also to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism and Leibach College for supporting Progressively Jewish. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast, Progressively Jewish, and encourage your friends to do the same. And as Tanya mentioned, we'd love to have your thoughts above about this podcast and what we can be doing with it. So please do 
comment on the Facebook page, Progressively Jewish, or by emailing us at progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Finally, in next week's episode, we will be led by student Rabbi David Yehuda Stern in exploring the theme of worship and some aspects of how that has been transformed in this COVID era as inspired by verses from Parshat Terumah.